This episode was produced in partnership with Dymo. The courageous part came from coming out of a pandemic and knowing that you can keep your business going and you've got something to offer and show the world. Storeholders that have come forward with awesome new ideas is what we love to see and we know our audience loves to see as well. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths and actionable insights. Strap in. Do you hold yourself back creatively because you're scared of what others will think? We're chatting to Brooke and Sarah, the two best mates behind Australia's biggest design market, the Finders Keepers. Like all great relationships, they met on the dance floor, but it was their shared love of fashion and design that saw them come together to work on a creative project, a market slash festival where they and other creatives could sell their own wares. The first five years of their business was a financial struggle until they decided they needed to build not only for love, but also for money. We covered how they stayed motivated in those first five years, how the business model has evolved over time, why partnerships has become a core part of their strategy, and what being a courageous creative means to them and how it can help you overcome your creative blocks. All right, so you guys have been in business together since 2008 and you were friends before that. It really seems like you bonded over this shared love of creativity and design. What was your first impression of one another when you first met? I think I met Sarah at a nightclub, actually. I remember seeing her uh, and she had a tattoo on, on, her, on her side with a little bit of midriff showing and I thought, this chick's cool. <laughs> I want to meet her. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And that was my first impression of Sarah. That's hilarious. What about you, Sarah? Brooke was up here in northern New South Wales and I was Sydney-based and I remember she came down to study jewellery design and she's actually married to my cousin, so there's a family and a friend (laughs) association there. I just remember meeting her for the first time and knowing that she was super creative and I was like, I feel like we're going to get along really well. I'm sure there was some dancing and shenanigans involved as well. (laughs) In the 20s. (laughs) So it sounds like there was a shared love of design. And I want to kind of understand how you got into that. Like where did the idea for the Finders Keepers come from? Is it your own personal experience? Can you talk us through how you bonded over that? So I was, yeah, as Sarah mentioned, studying jewellery design. It was 2000 and I think three or four. And then it was later on that we started the business, but I was trying to sell my jewelry and I started doing the weekend markets. I did Paddington markets, Glebe markets and had some okay experiences, but mostly they were negative experience, meaning we just couldn't find our customer. So I would get disheartened and Sarah was also doing her, had dabbled in her sort of own fashion label and was working in the fashion industry. We just always kind of would rant about just not being able to just have the right platform to sell our stuff. And there was just nothing around. There was just the weekend markets and there was nothing in between. Actually, one night I did a design market. It was just an evening an evening market at the powerhouse, I think it was. And I actually made sales and it was the most amazing feeling. And then after that, we just thought, how are we going to get 
the right people in a room mm. to sell our stuff. That was basically the premise. Yeah. And I think at the time there was an opportunity that came up. Somebody had a warehouse space in Surrey Hills and said, can you think of anything cool to do in there? And I was like, I don't know. I remember chatting through this idea with Brooke and they're like, why don't we just get all our friends in a room and you know, you can sell your stuff and we'll have music and wine and just do what we want to do and see if it works. And that was literally how we started, <laughs> just an opportunity and a you know, bunch of creatives. Yes, that sounds very familiar because our business started off the back of our own needs, which was to bring a community of women together. So it sounds like you were inspired by the night market and then you thought, hey, why don't we do what we want what we need is that kind of, was that kind of the experience because yeah that just feels really familiar to me hundred <laughs> percent it was definitely based on our own selfish needs at, in the <laughs> beginning and literally you know we weren't we didn't have high expectations for it it was it was just you know a fun thing to do at the time and I think at the time as well like there was lots of really kind of stuffy exhibitions that were a little bit too older demographic and that kind of person that wanted to spend a bit more money but wasn't quite our crowd. So we're really kind of identifying that there was a need for something that we wanted to go to and that we could get all these creative people in the same room. So, yeah. And so after you had that first market, which was, from what I've read, a huge success, full of people, great energy, great atmosphere, 20 storeholders, I believe, after that was such a success... Did you then think, mm, okay, like let's do this again and let's figure out how we can actually self-fund it or make some money from it? And how did that sort of expand into a business? From those early days, I think we were just like, let's just keep giving it a go and seeing where it goes. And the demand for it just got bigger and bigger. And I think we held it a few times in that small venue and the line started going out the doors and we we're like, okay, there's a big... <laughs> target market for this that we're reaching and a need for it. So I think it was probably that first year that we went, we should really consider, you know, growing this. But even those early days, we were like, still had other jobs and other things we were doing. So it was just a part-time kind of for the love project that we started. And I think over the years when it started to grow, we really were like, okay, we can make this into a business. So very kind of organic from the start and wasn't really like, oh, you know, let's make money from the start, it was just like, let's just do this for fun. And still, like at that time, we would both have our own stalls still. So it was still helping us lift our, our other little side hustles and businesses. And we just had that little entrepreneurial spirit, you know, just, just saying, let's do it ourselves. Let's keep going. So we just had sort of nothing to lose. So at what point in the journey did you decide, okay, you know, we've obviously, there's some great traction here, but we're not really making money. How can we turn this into a business? Like, did you guys sit down and go, what's our business model? We need a business plan. Let's write one. Like, what were those steps that you you initially took to really turn this from a passion and a bit of fun into a thriving business? I think the first time was when we moved to Carriage Works and the venue was like, you know, four times what we dealt with before. At the time, CarriageWorks was really supportive of creative small businesses. And I remember the producers there like sat us down and helped us do an event budget and gave us advice on how to, you know, make money from it and all this stuff. And that was really like a, a turning point for us. We're like, okay, we've got to get this right because there's a lot more things invested in it and we want to do really well. And I think that's the first time we're like, we need an accountant. 
to work out how to do a budget and set up the business properly. So I think when you get to those growing points, you're like, all right, we've got to be legit with this. That was an exciting first step. And we just kept learning as we grew, really. No, no business plan. We've, we've never actually technically written a business plan. It's just been such an organic growth. And I think, I think it was about five years in, it started to feel like a business. We were both working other jobs and, you know, it took a while to even pay ourselves. So yeah, it was definitely an organic thing. What was your mindset like in those first five years? Because, you know, building any kind of business or brand or community is hard. It can be a slog. And if you're not seeing that financial return, both for the business, but also individually for the long hours and the hard work you're doing, it can be really, really hard. And it can be, it can be really challenging for anyone starting a business. So I'm curious, how did you find the internal strength and resilience to continue in those first five years when you weren't necessarily seeing that financial return? For me, it was purely for the love of it. And I, I sort of, once we started, I just never thought it, it wouldn't be part of our lives. It was just that close to us. I think it was like literally like our, it is our first child. It was just that much part of our identity in a way. There was definitely moments where, you know, we were like, let's just throw in the towel, but nothing close. So yeah, I guess looking back, I mean, we were 20, 22 and I just did it. I just feel like we just did it. <laughs> was there any fear around the idea that this would become more than just your baby, that the baby would have to grow up and become a child and then an adult? Yeah, 100%. I think it's when we were at the point of employing and we had contracts in place and I was like, you know, it's not just us, we're responsible for a team and we need momentum and growth to keep this running. There's definitely fear around that stage of like we need to do it right and look after our people and keep that running. They're the stages that we kind of went through in the growth areas that we had to kind of push through. But everybody who's been involved in the business has just really had that same kind of drive and vision to support small business. And every event, it's like you come away with a high and you're like, what can we do better next time? And how can we improve things? And Mm -hmm. that kind of feedback loop has been a huge part of our business. Like we sit down and assess things and look at it with a fine tooth comb sometimes, the the good mm-hmm. and the bad, because sometimes it's not easy to go through those bits and pieces. But yeah, I think that kind of drive and momentum from the team has helped us grow as well over the years. So it's definitely a journey. What about for you, Brooke? Has there ever been any fear of, it's almost like a fear of success. And I think it's something that we don't really talk about. We talk about fear of failure all the time. But I think when business owners or founders get to that point where they are leveling up and they're taking on more responsibility, whether that's an investment or employees or whatever it might be, it can be really scary taking that step up. Did you ever feel that sense of fear? I mean, yes, definitely. But I think that because that we took it so slow, I feel like we didn't have this sort of overnight moment where the business changed. It was like this this gradual, really quite slow gradual because we've been in business for 15 years. So I feel like we didn't put our eggs in one basket. We just slowly phased out our jobs, our other jobs, and slowly moved into just having it as a full-time career. And I think the same with staff as well. We had contractors and then we slowly moved them into employees and then we sort of built our business and team from there. Certainly 
I probably can't remember those moments of fear. I'm sure they were there. Just taking it slow was is is maybe what we've done right because there's all these stories out there of like you know overnight success and making trillions you know in in one month or something that freaks me out you know we're old school in the way that we sort of have moved slow slow and steady yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that you know i think we we often talk about you know speed to market do we need to slow down do we need to speed up and figuring out what is that right balance but you know it often comes down to your mindset Absolutely. And your environment and how comfortable you feel. The other thing I think about is as well, when we built our business from the beginning, social media was non-existent. We had MySpace and that was it. MySpace did help us a lot in, you know, publicists had reached out to us and helped us promote our event and everything, but we didn't have Instagram and we didn't have Facebook and TikTok. You guys don't look old enough for MySpace to be a business tool, honestly. (laughs) Really? Take that as a compliment. I'm in a dark room. I'm going to take it. As yeah, a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why your lights are off. Okay, great. So, I mean, I want to talk about that transition. You just said that you know it was like, yes, this we're going to make some money here. This is a business. Carriage Works obviously helped you understand how we, we can make money through running events. But what actually changed? You know, what's what did help you start to make money? Because obviously, was, I mean, was it scale, new products, new services, your mindset? Talk us through what you had to change in the business that helped you to start making money? Mindset was a huge one. So shifting it from that like love of doing it to going, okay, we need to take this seriously. We also wanted to go full-time with the business ourselves. And so we switched our event to a three-day event and we put our stall fees up and we went, okay, you know, how, how can we grow and make money from this and sat down and looked at those goals. So I think that was probably a pivotal point of growth. As Brooke said, I think it was about five years in to the journey and yeah, just had to t- treat it seriously and go, how can we, you know, make our events better? Well, we've got to make more money, you know, to spend that kind of money as well. So that was lots of learning and sitting down and doing small business courses and things like that. Being more strategic with, you know, how much things cost and making sure that we were charging the right amount for the floor space and yeah, just really treating it like a shopping mall kind of format. You rent it out at a certain price and all the, all the things like, you know, those kind of detailed. Do you remember that conversation that the two of you had at that five-year mark coming together and going, okay, like we need to get serious about this. We need to make money in order to grow this business and allow ourselves to work on this full time. And did you get any support from anyone at that time to really help you flesh out that plan and go, okay, what is the pathway for us to work full-time in this business? Because I think this is a really critical time for a lot of business owners who are kind of working part-time to fund their lives and trying to grow the business. It's a real tension point, decision point in the journey. And I'm just curious, like, how did you create the plan, the pathway to allow you guys to work in this business full-time? There was a few things. Sarah did a couple of entrepreneurial-based kind of courses. I think this was pivotal in the growth of our business was doing a course with Prue from the Owners Collective. And she helped us with mindset and business growth and cash flow and all that stuff. Sarah's, Sarah's going to be able to tell that in more, in more detail, but I feel like that was pretty big. I think also just spending time with our accountant at the time who was just helping us look at it from a more financial perspective, actually learning how to read a profit and loss statement, 
understanding your numbers instead of just kind of going in blind and having all that extra support to just, you know, level up in lots of ways was a huge turning point for us. And it's just something you continue to learn as well. Never stop learning. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk more about the um, program as well? I'm really intrigued. Like, did you, you said you didn't write a business plan, but how did you consolidate your thinking? Because I think a lot of people out there, we, we, again, we talk about this idea. Do you need a business plan? Do you not? We've created a program, Basecamp, to help early stage founders put together a plan. It's not a business plan that you would get off the internet, but what we've done is kind of taken all the bits and pieces that we believe that a founder needs in order to create some sort of plan to move forward. Because without that, it's very difficult to create those pathways. How have you created that plan and those pathways forward? Yeah, so I think what Brooke was saying is we didn't write a traditional business plan. I remember looking at them back in the day thinking, well, this is a whole lot of crap that you have to fill out (laughs) um, and didn't really make much sense to us individually at that time. But yeah, there's definitely so many more amazing business plans and templates now for people to write their goals and vision and mission and work towards those steps. Yeah, we did kind of start to set out our own goals internally and sit down and look at that more from like a 12-month perspective. And then we looked at it like in incremental parts, like three to six months and worked towards how can we get there and what what do we want it to look like and how do we want it to feel. It's kind of looking more from a different point of view than your assets and liabilities and all those boring things. So Yeah, I think it was more just basing the plans on how it felt intuitively for us to run a business and what we wanted to, you know, achieve in that way. But yes, definitely I'm a planner. So it's a different type of planning, just not the traditional business plan. I'm a little bit more spontaneous, Sarah. (laughs) That's why we we work together. We balance each other out. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. What do you mean by more spontaneous and how does that show up in the business? Because it is interesting, you know, when you do have co-founders that perhaps approach business in a different way, what does that actually mean showing up in a more spontaneous manner? I always explain it as Sarah's the brains and I'm the hands. So (laughs) anything that you see in Finance Keepers in the sort of physical sense is me. Whereas as Sarah's, you know, she's the heart of the business, you know, you mightn't see her in the physical sense at an event, but that's how I explain it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's a great way to explain it. I know that Brooke is definitely the heart and brains of the business as well in terms of like marketing and planning and those kind of nitty gritty behind the scenes things. That's definitely me and Brooke, you know, is the mm. logistics and operations that physically make the event happen. We definitely have a good balance and magic mix between us. Did it take a while for you to find your groove in terms of figuring out what your individual skill sets are, but also your individual approaches to business? Like, as you said before, Sarah, you're more of a planner. Brooke, you're more spontaneous. I can imagine you tackle problems in a completely different way. Have you ever had tension around the different ways of working? And how did you kind of find that groove? 100%. It took us a while, I I think, to find the groove because in the beginning, we both were sort of doing everything. And I can't say as much as probably 
you'd want to say, you know, the juicy story would be, yes, there's tension, you know, but we actually haven't ever really had tension. It just fell into place. Uh, that sounds like a romantic story, but it did. It literally just fell into place. <laughs> I think it's just our, our strengths showed when we started um, and definitely more so now as well. I think our roles have just really defined themselves just with time. Sarah, I want to talk more about our marketing. You know, you guys have obviously come a long way since the MySpace days. Like MySpace to TikTok is a massive quantum leap. You said you come up with some a plan. You obviously like to goal set. I'm really interested. Like, how has that evolved? What are you working on now? Like, I was scouring the internet, your website in particular, and I saw partnerships was a really massive focus. So perhaps we can start there. But can you tell us? What are you focusing on from a marketing sense? How do you tap into your super engaged community? Yeah, partnerships is a a tricky one and a big one. I'm super interested in what other people say in that space as well. I think because we're an event and we have an experience that we can tap into different partnerships is kind of an advantage for us. It has definitely been tricky over the years to find good partners, but We've definitely found some really great like-minded people to work with us that have similar visions and ethics in their business as well. I think most of the the people that we work with want to tap into our community and they have like-minded communities. So that's a really nice synergy for us. Like you said, marketing has really been organic. Like We've shifted and changed from the very, very beginning and learnt as we go still learning as things evolve with algorithms and video and all that stuff. But we're also lucky because we we have a creative community. So we're always pushing their content and sharing their stories. And it's so good to draw on that. And we found the more momentum we have with that, the more people want to share. So it's kind of like opening it up to different things and experiences. And that really kind of shows off who we are and our audience loves it. So yeah, it's been definitely organic involvement with our community it's kind of like changing a lot now with the video and reels and everything which is really exciting because it feels more interactive so yeah marketing has been something that we're continuously looking at and wanting to change and trying to find new audiences but also just keep our current audience really engaged with our content as well Yeah, it's interesting. We've been having a lot of conversations with our community in relation to partnerships because digital advertising is just such a challenge at the moment. It's become way less effective than it has in the past. And so lots of brands are thinking about how they can partner with other like-minded brands or communities to really amplify their brand and their message. If there's one piece of advice you have around partnerships that you could share with our audience, what would it be? Like, What is something that you found really, really works? One thing that we find works is the cultivation of relationships in partnerships. So sometimes they take a long time, like they can take a year or longer to have someone that get, finally gets involved. So building those relationships, something that we do is invite them to our events, have a conversation, you know, give them a free ticket, send them a product or whatever works for your business. I think they are a bit of a slow burn. It's like PR. You really have to put in the work and build those relationships and make sure that they're a right fit. I don't think there's any kind of golden formula for partnerships as much as we all wish there was. I really think you need to put in the time and effort 
and have a really bespoke pitch that works for them. You can't just send out generic ones. You've got to really kind of get to know what their needs are and what they want out of it before you put yours. So yeah, I think that's something that we've developed over time. And even businesses that had joined our events and then they've turned into a partner, that's been a big one because they've kind of tried it out and they've got to know us and trust us. And then we've been able to develop something bigger for them. A bit like a dating game. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The first day it is, you know, getting to know you. And then, as you said, figuring out their needs and how you can work together and, and I guess make it beneficial for both brands, not only the brand that's partnering with you, but vice versa. And I think one thing that we always try to do with our partners, as you said, is, is to really spend the time finding the right people and the right brands and cultivating those relationships. But, you know, it's like anything in business, everything is relationships. It's that shared value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm interested. Have you got an example of a partner and what was it that they were looking for? Like obviously it is a you know, mutually beneficial um, relationship and agreement that you enter into, but do you have an example of perhaps a brand that you've worked with and they were really super clear on what they needed and you were then able to kind of go back and pitch to them and start a beautiful relationship? Probably like an alcohol partner, like Stone and Wood. Do they come to you or did you go to them and what was their need? Stone and Wood, it was just presence, like brand in hand sort of style. So we would run bars at our events and that was our exclusive beer, Stone and Wood. So all the images and content we would gather from the events, everyone would just be holding a Stone and Wood and they would be, you know, engaging with storeholders and customers and it just, it was just incredible content for them and just, you know, brand awareness really. We also did a partnership with Zero. They did a on-site recharge station. Yeah, I think for them it was more of a like a B2B thing. They wanted to reach small businesses, but just getting their brand out there and having exposure at events was important, that kind of small business target market. So they had lots of like bespoke signs and stuff that connected with people, little decals on the floor that people would read and think about and kind of see that brand exposure. They were able to connect with, you know, our small business community as well. And so for those partnerships, do you have internal meetings where you kind of have this creative brainstorm? Like what can we do that's really, really cool for this brand? Or do brands come to you with a really clear idea of what activation they want? Or is it a bit of a mix? Like how do you actually come up with these concepts that make sense for you? And for them? I think it's definitely a mix. Sometimes they have objectives that they want, like Zero wanted brand exposure. So signage and decals was something that was important to them, but they were like, you know, you're the creative ones. Where would it look good and how would it, how can you present it nicely? So I think it's a mixture of us presenting opportunities and knowing what works for our audience first, and them also saying, you know, what their objectives are. I think over time we've got better at saying we know what works for our audience instead of being kind of dictated with what we should do, especially when it comes to digital content and how we present to people. We we understand our audience. So for us it was kind of important to have creative boundaries and go, if you want good results, we can show you how to do those. And that kind of sets the tone of the limitations of what they can do and then also really being responsive to what kind of reach they want. Do they want B2C? Do they want B2B? Where do they want to be seen on emails or on socials and stuff like that? So it's definitely a negotiation that takes a bit of effort going back and forth. 
And there's, it's quite, quite unique in the way that we can offer that sort of digital partnership as well as the physical event. So some brands don't want to go on site because it's not really like economical for them. Or some brands might go, you know, can we park a car in the foyer? And we'll say that's not really going to work for our event. So it's just working through all those nuances. Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that because I find, uh, you know, obviously the last few years have been tricky without physical presence. You've had to really rely on, you know, your digital platform. Was that a challenge, especially from a brand partnership perspective? Because, you know, I, I would assume and what I get a sense is a lot of brands do still really value physical presence, being able to showcase their product or their brand out in the real world. Did you struggle with that in having to just renegotiate or negotiate digital based kind of contracts and also from a community perspective how did you keep your community involved during that time because you're now having to balance the brands and the community can you kind of speak to how you were able to really lean into the digital world over the last two years and keep the business going we were lucky because we'd actually soft launched our online marketplace at the end of 2019 as if we had a crystal ball (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that we're going to need some crazy online, (laughs) shop the market online sort of style. Silver lining of the pandemic was that we we really focused on building that online marketplace in 2020 and in 2021. So that was an amazing outlet. We did a few online markets that kept our community and our storeholders engaged as well as just socials and just keep making sure that they were supported. That was our sort of number one goal through the COVID crisis because we were all going through it. Everyone was going through it. We knew that it it was, you know, hitting our storeholders really hard because a lot of our storeholders rely on the physical markets as their, you know, annual income. So that was really important to us to make sure that they were there, even though we weren't operating, but, you know, it was just like this this shared support. On the partnership side, we actually had all these contracts lined up because we were starting our season for 2020. So we had all these amazing things that were on the go. And obviously when we got the news that events were shut down, we had to unfortunately lose all those partnerships and agreements that were in place. So that was really, really challenging. And a lot of people were scared and they didn't want to spend money. So it did take a while for people to start operating and thinking about how to pivot online and what they can do. So we did have a few small digital partnerships, but nothing kind of that we would have hoped for in 2020. But I think like I was saying before, just we had to keep engaging with those people, whether they were small relationships, we had to keep the momentum going, um, kind of faking it till you make it, which I'm sure everybody was doing at the time. Thank you, JobKeeper. Oh, gosh. The brands that stood up and supported their communities during that time are the ones that I find have tended to flourish and continue to not just flourish but grow on the other side because people remember when you're there during those tough times and you're not trying to do or be or sell anything but just offer support. You guys were doing that. Um, You know, there were definitely some brands out there that were doing that really well. So, you know, kudos because, yeah, it was a hard time. Everyone was going through something. So, yeah, your community continues to thrive, which is amazing. Definitely the silver lining was our community and knowing that they would support us through that. And during that time, I think one of the best things that we did really early on was ask them for what they needed and how we could support them. 
So we literally would get on the phone and talk to small businesses and hear their stories and we opened up a survey and we got really good at listening. And I think that has come back to what we do and how we do it and being open to those conversations has shaped where we've been moving. So, yeah, community is not just about what you show but actually actively listening and engaging with them as well. A community takes time. It's not about like gaining, you know, 2,000 followers overnight. It's like it's a slow process and you just need to know that they can trust you. I think that's, yeah, that you can deliver on, on your what you put out there. And when the pandemic happened, they knew that, you know, our, our community knew they wanted to stand by us and that was, wasn't, there wasn't a question of that. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think sometimes business owners get caught up in this idea of community building, but actually really it's one relation and it's one relationship at a time. You know, it's having one conversation or one phone call with somebody at a time. And as you said, listening, asking for what they need, having another one, having another one. And then ultimately those people start talking to each other and the community starts to self-propagate really. But again, it just comes down to building those relationships. And, And I think when people are starting out early, it can be overwhelming, but start small one phone call, one relationship, and it sort of, it grows from there. Yeah. It reminds me of a LinkedIn post that I saw and someone asked, does community building resonate? You know, is building the right term? And most people saying like, no, it's like, you know, you've got to get in there and nourish. And I don't know what the right term is, but it is just getting in there asking, as you said, asking questions, understanding what people need. You can't force the creation of a community. You all have to want to gather together. So it's providing those right tools um, and having the correct conversations and just creating a safe environment. So yeah, it's a great way to think about how you can cultivate and nourish a community. We know that behind every business and founder, there are always tools and resources that you know help us along with our journey. I'd love to know what tools or equipment could you not live without? I have a kit. I have a, a big kit that travels with us everywhere. I used to have, we used to have a traveler container, but that actually got flooded in the floods. In the, <laughs> so, but it actually helped because I, I needed to streamline it anyway, but always cord ties. Yep. Makes yep. sense. Yep. <laughs> always Stanley knives, double-sided tape, gaffer tape, my sectioned container with my Dymo labels on top, sectioning out band-aids, tissues, pens, highlighters, etc. It all fits neatly in my labeled, yeah, anything that's temporary, um, I'm your woman. <laughs> so good. I love that, the toolkit. Every time anyone peeps into that kit, you can find it because it's labeled and I'm like, all right, there's that thing that I knew, <laughs> never knew I needed. So you talk about being a courageous creative. Like I love that term, but I want to learn more. What does that mean to you? If I'm a courageous creative and I tap into that, how then can I also get involved in the Finders Keepers? I think it it sort of means just having faith in your brand, believing in your brand and putting yourself out there, just putting yourself out there in front of thousands of eyes and, and, and ready to talk about your product and let people know what it's about and, and why they should have it in their lives. Yeah. And I was just going to say being authentic and finding your own brand voice and who you're about and being, I guess, the courageous part came from coming out of a pandemic and knowing that you can keep your business going and you've got something to offer and show the world. And I think storeholders 
that have come forward with awesome new ideas of new products or just how they present themselves in different ways is what we love to see and we know our audience loves to see as well. We're constantly blown away with what we see, but even in this time, you can still see something new. So yeah, it's out there. I agree. And I think it's almost even kind of taking it a step back, right? It's giving people permission or encouraging people to explore their creativity because I feel like it's such a personal journey, you know, going on this creative exploration of your talents or the things that you love. We often are our own worst critic and hold ourselves back from exploring and tapping into our creativity. So for me, I, I, I interpret that as, you know, find the courage to first go and explore it. And then to second, feel confident enough to, yeah, as you said, share and talk about it um, and put it out into the world because, you know, you may just make someone's day that little bit happier with your creativity. So we have one final question we'd love to ask. What is one piece of advice that you can leave our listeners with? It could be business, personal, mindset, it can be anything. I think just following on from what we were just talking about, that courageous creativity is actually giving it a go. It's much easier to take a job, a secure job that pays you nine to five, but putting yourself out there in an idea and knowing that it's okay if you fail, you can always get a job again. You know, it's just that act of courage and giving it a go is such a huge thing. And there's so much support around you that you can do that and a whole like cheer squad of people at the events that we do and in our community that's always there to to gather support for small businesses. So, yeah, just give it a go. Yeah, and my advice would be I think is it doesn't have to be perfect when you, when you start. It's never going to be perfect actually in your own eyes, but I think people get caught up in getting the marketing and the social media and it all in a line, but I think that you just got to be kind to yourself and and know that it's yeah it's not going to be probably what you what you thought straight away you know it might take time all good things take time thanks for listening if you want to catch some behind the scenes action from our chat with Brooke and Sarah head to our Instagram at lady.brains and if you haven't already follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss a beat <laughs>